Thanks, uh, band. I, I thought you played that. Ex- Look, I'm not very musical, but I thought you played that excellently. Thanks for leading us so well. Thank you, band. That was really, really good. Right. Folks, have a look in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. Turn to Isaiah chapter 6. I'm going to read it and then we'll pray and we'll think about it together. You may know that we're busy in a series. Uh, it's, it's, it's really a mini-series. Seven talks on the book of Isaiah, just leading up to Christmas, uh, just for a bit of fun. So we're in Isaiah chapter 6 today. We were in Isaiah chapter 1 last week. So make sure you... By the way, if you want to find Isaiah, it's pretty much in the middle of your Bible. Just open your Bible in the middle. You should be around Isaiah. Go to chapter 6 and let me read it to us and then I'll pray. Everyone there? Right, it, it goes like this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell among the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tent remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. It's like uh, Harry Potter, isn't it? Well, let's pray and ask God to open our eyes to see, to understand and to hear. Holy Spirit, you are the one who wrote these words. You are the one who moved Isaiah 
brought him into the temple and gave him a vision of God. We're going to ask for exactly the same thing tonight. In the quiet, as the words of Isaiah are written down, sitting in front of us, open our eyes, help us to see. Please, help us to see. And when we've seen, change us forever because of what we see. Please come, speak tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, have you ever had the experience of being in serious trouble, very, very big trouble, in front of someone that you're very afraid of? Have you ever had that experience where you are, like being called out to the headmaster's office or uh, a policeman confronting you in, in the act or something like that? Have you ever had that experience? Have you think? Where you are terrified. You're about to meet your maker. Literally. Well, let me tell you what happened to me. I'm sure, you, I'm sure this is normal. I'm sure this happened to you as well. Here's one of my most terrifying experiences. I remember it very clearly. I bear the emotional scars to this day. My dad used to work for a company. And what he did when I was 12 years old is he used to let me reverse the car out of the garage. And we had a double garage, and all I would do is get in the car and reverse it slowly outwards and park it for him while he was in the shower or having breakfast or, a, or his 23rd cup of tea or something. And it was just normal, and it was fun. But what he didn't know was that I'd get in the car, and then I'd reverse out the garage, but then I'd reverse onto the road. And I'd drive up and down the road a little bit before he could notice and then I'd pull back into the driveway and park the car. Maybe, you know what, we're so dumb. Maybe he knew all along. But anyway, anyway, so it just occurred to me. But um, it was a little cul-de-sac, so don't worry, it wasn't too bad. Very quiet little road. And this is, was my practice. I always used to say, Dad, Dad, can I take the car out? And you'd say, you're sure here. And off I'd go. Well, my dad, working for a company, got a brand new company car. It was six days old. I remember clearly. And it was one of those new fancy cars, the Toyota Cressida. Yeah, I'm old. But anyway, it was very fancy in its day. Uh, so one day I get in the car and I reverse it out the garage and off, obviously, onto the road. And this is a new car. It's like it even smells good and stuff. And I drive it up and down. And I come down the little cul-de-sac into our driveway and I'm going too fast. And what do you do uh, when you panic? Uh, things go wrong. And all I know is I hit the accelerator. And the car went, and it smashed into the wall between the two garages. The whole thing crunched. The whole thing was smashed up in front. To this day, I can hear the noise exactly. I can see it. And me sitting in the driver's seat, 12 years old, with a smashed up car. And my dad, blissfully unaware, getting dressed in his bedroom. So I get out the car and folks, I walked down that passage. It was the longest walk of my life. Because at the end of that passage sat the biggest, scariest monster on earth. My dad was seven foot ten. Well, that's what he looked like. Whatever. <laughs> I now know he isn't, but at that stage he was seven foot ten. He was massive. And I walked into the bedroom 
and there the monster was sitting in his underpants. <laughs> um, that's because my dad always used to, that's the weirdest thing, my dad, and I know he wants me to tell you this, he always used to put his underpants and socks on first. I never understood why, whenever he got out the shower. But anyway, I walked into the bedroom and there was my dad, scary enough in just his underpants, but there he sat putting his socks on and I will never forget him looking up at me. And me looking at him with tears pouring down my face. It was the ultimate confrontation. And uh, I'll never forget that. And he did things to me that are, are, are illegal today. But in those days it worked. But anyway. Now, so that's my little story. Now I wonder, have you ever had that, that anxiety, that feeling when you know you're guilty? And you're about to come to your day of reckoning. And imagine what it must be like to meet an angry God. Imagine what it must be like to stand before a God who is angry with you. And you're guilty. You know you did it. What, what it must be like. What do you do with it? You know, the whole of life is really the passage in my house. The way I had to walk down that passage to my dad's bedroom. That's, that's what life is like. We're all on this passage. And according to the Bible, we're going to stand before an angry God. And I know you think you can turn right into your bedroom or go left into the bathroom. But it's unavoidable. You're going to end up in the bedroom facing an angry God. How do you handle a concept like an angry God? If I say to you the words, angry God, how do you handle that concept? What do you do with it? Well, there's a couple of things you can do. First thing you can do is say, well, don't worry, because there's no God. Oh, well, in that case, we're all fine. Don't worry about it. Go ahead and live your life and enjoy it. I don't want to deal with that now. If you've come to the conclusion there's no God, but if you have, please can I buy you something at the dome? Because I really want to hear from you how you came to that conclusion. I'd love to know how you came to that conclusion. But for tonight, I'm going to assume there is a God. Let's assume there is a God. Now, how do we handle the concept of an angry God? Well, our next option is to say that he's not angry. There is a God, but he's not angry. Because God doesn't really get angry. How do you know this? Well, uh, well, I just know. Okay, okay, cool. So, there isn't an angry God. The thing is, God doesn't really care. Actually, I've come to discover God is amoral. Right and wrong don't bother him that much. The reason people get angry is because people have got a more developed, sharper sense of right and wrong than God. He's a bit fluffy about these sort of things. Sure, there's bad things, but nothing God can't get over. Give him a bit of time. So that's what you could do. You could say there's a God and he's not angry. But the third option, and here's the one that's the most popular, is the fact of the matter for the history of the human race. Nine, I'm making this up because I don't know what the figures are, but more than 90% of people think there is a God and he's angry. Most people think that. And so what you do then is you take the third option. There is a God, he is angry, so we've got to placate him. And the way you placate God is you make a sacrifice. So you cut the chicken's head off. Or you, you give him rice. Or you give him milk. Or you kill the cow. You make a sacrifice to try and calm him down. 
Or, if you're not into blood and guts and things, what you do is you be good. You say, I know you're angry, but watch me for the rest of this week because I'm going to make it up to you. I'm going to make you so happy with my good deeds, you'll never be cross again. And that's the way 90% of the human race have lived, by sacrifice or good deeds, doing something in order to deal with a concept of an angry God. Now, before we go a step further, I need to tell you that according to the Bible, there is a God and he's very angry, very angry. The problem of an angry God is a biblical problem. 90% of the people on this planet are actually right. Their consciences are correct. There is a God and he's angry. Look at verse 25 of chapter 5 of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5 verse 25. See, I'm scared some of you are sitting here and this is a new idea for you. Well, it doesn't really frighten me. But, uh, and it might frighten you more actually. <laughs> but um, come with an open mind. Because I want to show you that according to the Bible, God is angry. Look at Isaiah chapter 5 verse 25. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them and the mountains quaked and their corpses were as refuse in the midst of the streets. And for all this his anger is not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. How scary is that verse? His hand is stretched out still. It's like this. Look. God has hit his people and his hand is still outstretched. He's ready to strike again. It's a terrifying picture. This isn't Santa Claus. Come and sit on my lap. This is God like this, ready to strike. That's the picture of God we get from the Bible. Why is he so angry? Why is God so angry. Well, the whole of chapter 5 tells us. Chapter 5 is a very clever chapter. It's got this very clear structure of woe and therefore. Woe, therefore. So look at verse 8. Woe. Verse 11. Woe. Verse 13. Therefore. Verse 14. Therefore. Verse 18, woe. Verse 20, woe. Verse 21, woe. Verse 22, woe. Verse 24, therefore. Verse 25, therefore. In other words, we know why God is angry because of the woes. And the therefores are the judgments. Let me show you why God is angry. First of all, rampant materialism makes God angry. Look at verse 8. Woe to those. This is Isaiah 5. Verse 8, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, until there's no more room, and you are made to dwell in the midst of the land. Woe to those who buy a house in Illu, in Illu and rent it out, and then buy a house in Jundalup and rent it out, and then buy a house in Kingsley and rent it out, and buy a house. Woe to them, says God. Oh, that's a bit hot. Oh, woe to those who make themselves richer, and richer and richer. God is angry with, and I'm looking around and most of us are young, we haven't even got our first house. So how about this one? God is angry with the party animals who forget the Lord 
Look at verse 11 and 12. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They've got the lyre, the harp, the tambourine, the flute, the guitar, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hands. God's not against parties, by the way. The party starts with Christianity. What God is against is those who party and forget him. Woe to them. And therefore, verse 13, therefore, verse 14, judgment must come. And God is angry. Look at verse 18. Angry with those who love sin and yet are self-righteous and somehow think that God will let them off. Look at verse 18. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sinners with cart ropes, who say, come on, (laughs) God's going to judge. Yeah, right. Let him be quick. Let him speed his work that we may see it. Let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near. Let it come that we may know it. These are those who challenge God. They carry on in their sin, but they're quite sure that God will let them off. I know I'm cheating on my wife, but God will fully understand my problem with my wife. I know that this is unacceptable. But hey, my situation is very difficult. God understands. Woe to people who speak like that. Who think when God comes, somehow he'll find that they're okay. Woe to them. Woe to those who are arrogant. Verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. And who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to people who think that they can totally redefine morality. Woe to them, says God. Those who think they can redefine morality. And what about the arrogant? Look at verse 21. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Woe to those people who say, well, actually, listen. I don't want to be rude, but God's got it wrong at this point. The way I see it, okay, is that, blah, woe to them who think they are wise in their own sight. Woe to them that are dishonest. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine, verse 22, and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. Woe to them, valiant men in mixing drink, After three beers, do you know how brave people become? Valiant men in mixing drink. When you've had your second beer, you start thinking the Bible's full of contradictions. After your third beer, you think, well, I'm actually not as bad as everyone. After your fourth beer, you know God's got it wrong. Woe to them, brave men. I've sat with many brave men. Got brave things to say about God. Woe to them. Valiant in mixing strong drink. And so therefore, verse 25, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people. The shockers I've been describing, God's people. (laughs) You thought I was describing the baddies outside, didn't you? None of this applies to us, obviously. No, God's talking about his people. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he stretched out his hand against them and struck them. The mountains quaked, the corpses were his refuge in the midst of the streets. And for all this his anger has not turned away. His hand is stretched out still. Oh, still. 
Here's the question. How do we deal with an angry God? What will turn his anger away? For all this, his anger is not turned away. Okay, so what will turn his anger away? His hand is stretched out still. Okay, how do we get God to put his hand down? How do we get him to put his hand down? That's the agonizing question. In fact, what's the hope for the planet? If this is what God thinks of his people, what do you think are going to happen to the folk in Joondalup? What do you think is the hope for the planet and the humanity and the universe? And the answer is, Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah chapter 6 answers the question of what must happen when you come face to face with an angry God. Because in Isaiah chapter 6, the prophet Isaiah, who stands representative as an embodiment of all God's people, he comes face to face with the holy, angry God. And what happens to Isaiah is what must happen to us. It's what must happen to all God's people if they are going to survive, if they are going to be witnesses for him, and if the world, Jundalup, Kingsley, is going to have any hope whatsoever. So let's see what happens to Isaiah. Thanks, Igor. And oh, no, he gave me a machine. Here it is. Okay, number one. Isaiah sees the Holy Lord enthroned above the earth. Look at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne. You surely were able to spot that contrast. In the year that the man-king died, I saw the Lord seated upon his throne. It's a wonderful contrast. Like, as in, who's the real king? The man-king is dead. Long live the king. Seated upon his throne. Now, Uzziah, you have to know a bit of background, was a very powerful king. He had a long reign, a successful reign. He was rich, he was powerful. And what he did was he brought a measure of peace and stability to Israel. In fact, he was also militarily very successful as well. Life was good under King Uzziah. The economy was great. They had great military might. He had sorted out the problem of illegal immigrants. He had a great foreign policy. He was a great ruler and life was good under him. And Israel prospered. But what happens whenever God's people prosper? What happens? Pride. They became proud, especially Uzziah himself. And let me read it to you from, don't turn there, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. You can see the history of Uzziah. When Uzziah was strong, he grew proud to his own destruction. For he was unfaithful to the Lord his God. And he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Okay, so let me tell you the story. You can read about this in 2 Chronicles 26. Here's what happens. Uzziah becomes proud. And he thinks, you know this idea of an angry God? Well, that applies to everyone else except me. I can just go into his presence. 
I can waltz into God. Me and the big man upstairs, we'll, we'll sort it out. Because after all, I am the king. And so he takes a golden thing of incense and he goes into the temple to the Holy of Holies thinking, hey, I'm the king around here, you know. God will accept me. Doesn't God know who I am? Honestly. But the priests ran up to King Uzziah and they said to him, Oh king, don't do this. Don't go into the presence of an angry God. You can't do this. Only the high priest can go into God's presence. And Uzziah, what what do men do when you confront them? They just get angrier. And so that's what Uzziah got. He's up and he got angry with them. And as he stood there, angry with God, leprosy bust out on his forehead. He started getting leprosy all over his head and his face. And the priests went, oh, you know, and they all started. They quickly grabbed him and they raced him out. And there's a great sentence in Chronicles where Uzziah himself got tried to get out as faster than the priests. And they all rushed the king out. And this is what we read. And King Uzziah was a leper to the day of his death. And being a leper, he lived in a separate house. King Uzziah, because of his pride, his arrogance, and his presumption, oh, I reckon God will accept me. Because of that, he became unclean. That's what a leper was. And he died ultimately. And that's what you have in chapter 6 verse 1. In the year that the unclean, stinky leper, King Uzziah, died. In that year, I saw the Lord. So why are we given this contrast? Why does this passage straight away give us this contrast? I'll tell you why. Because it just makes you realize, why are you trusting in people? One of the sins of Israel was to stop trusting in God and turn and trust in people. You remember last week uh, I spoke about Julia Gillard and Barack Obama. But that's always the perennial human fault, is to trust in a human ruler. Come to chapter 2, verse 22. Look at Isaiah, chapter 2, verse 22. Isaiah just, my son, finds this verse very amusing. Look at Isaiah chapter 2 verse 22. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath. For of what account is he? Why are you so afraid of man whose nostrils is his breath? Uzziah's breath has just been plucked out of his nostrils. Of what account is he? Israel's fault was to trust in the human ruler. And that's why Isaiah chapter 6 has this picture of the dead human king and the living reigning Lord. Now, let's look at the vision together. Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah sees the Holy Lord enthroned above the earth. Let's look at some of the things. Number one, I saw the Lord seated upon a throne. Folks, Jesus Christ is not lying down on a couch of retirement. I saw the Lord seated upon a throne. He reigns, really. I know that we look at things on earth and we think, oh, it's all going pear-shaped or whatever the new cool way of saying that is. But he still reigns. Somehow, he still, Isaiah sees it. He sees it, that God reigns. Not only does he see you on the throne, 
He is high and lifted up. That is, the Lord is above the conundrums and collie wobbles and faffing of this world. He's exalted in glory, untouched by our comings and goings and our toings and froings. <gasps> God must have ulcers at night, thinking of all the conflict in Palestine. <gasps> He's high, exalted, untouched. His glory is unfazed by our silliness and our doings and dabblings. Not only that is he high and lifted up, but the train of his robe filled the temple. This glorious God, his hem or the bottom line of his robe as he's seated on his throne, ruling the universe, just his hem fills the whole temple. It's obviously a picture, but a picture paints a thousand words. And the picture here is telling us this, that this God cannot be domesticated. The perennial fault of Israel was that God lived in that room over there. I live in Marangaroo, and that guy lives in Wanneroo, and God lives in that building over there. That's how Israel thought. God is stuck in his temple, like a, like a, a budgie in a cage. We keep him in a cage, and when we can't, we open the doors and he flaps around a little bit, and then we let him back in. But he belongs in the cage. And here is Isaiah seeing a picture and just his robe fills the temple. God's not stuck to your buildings. He's not domesticated. He fills heaven and earth. Just the hem of his robe fills the temple. Not only that, verse 2, above him stood the seraphim. Gee, what a picture. Now the seraphim we don't know much about. The Bible doesn't tell us much. But here's what they are. The word seraphim comes from the Hebrew word sarap, which means fire, burning. And so the seraphim are literally the burning ones, the fiery ones. These are mysterious creatures that we don't know much about. Look at how they're described. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. Is there anything like that at the Perth Zoo? We don't know anything about these creatures, folks. We don't pretend to know much. All we know is that these are mysterious beings that are dazzling and they are called the burning ones. And their job is to guard God's throne. Not because God's in trouble and he needs help. Because their job is to stop unclean creatures coming into God's presence. Their role, like the cherubim, is to guard the cleanliness of God's presence. And nothing unclean can come in. The reason I know this is because when Adam and Eve, man and woman, sinned and became unclean, God chased them out of his presence. And he put their two cherubim with flaming swords flashing forward and back to stop unclean people coming into God's presence. And of course that originally was Adam's job. Men and women were meant to do that job. Adam's job was to keep the Garden of Eden clean and guard it. And because he was on the couch watching TV, the Satan came in and led his wife astray. And that job has been handed to the seraphim and the cherubim. And look at what they do. What do these creatures do? First they cover their face so that they can't look on the glory of God because they can't handle it. But what do they do all day long? 
Look at verse 3. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. What are these, these burning creatures? Trying, I mean, they must be as big as Africa or maybe a lot bigger. Stop thinking of a five foot two person on fire, please. We need to be bigger here. But all these creatures do is worship God. All day, every day, they call to one another and worship God. Do you think they've seen something? Hmm? Do you think they've seen something? None of them thinks, you know what, I'm off duty. I'm going to worship from ten to... 12. Then I'll go karting and then I'll. They are so enraptured by the wonder that is God that they can do nothing else but worship Him every moment for eternity. And look at what they shout Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. How do we understand what this means? First of all, holy, holy, holy is a Hebrew intensive. It means utterly holy. Holy to the Google degree. Totally holy. But what does it mean when they say holy, holy, holy is the Lord God? What does that mean? Does it just mean moral purity? Is that all it means? Because it does mean that. Folks, it means way more than that. Holiness is so hard for us to describe because there is nothing I can come. If I could say, let me try and teach you about God's power, what I'd show you is my bicep and say, God's like that, but a lot stronger. When it comes to holiness, there is nothing you can compare. There's nothing you can look at and say, see that? That's a bit holy. Now God is like, There's nothing. What is holiness? Let me try and explain. Holiness is the beauty of God. Holiness is the radiant beauty of God. It's the gorgeousness of God. It is that overpowering magnificence of God. Words fail you. I mean, what words are you going to use? How do I know? Because glory is holiness on display. Look at what it says. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of His glory. Glory is holiness on display. Holiness is God's sheer magnificence. And how can you explain it? How do you get your head around it? The only answer is that you look at the earth. The whole earth is full of His glory. What this simply means is that when God made planet Earth, He left a thumbprint and a pinky print and a forefinger print. He created the Earth and He left His fingerprints all over it. And so every now and then, because you and I are creatures living on planet Earth, every now and then we stumble across something, a small little, that makes us realize, oh my gosh, you know that moment that I'm talking about? Has that ever happened to you? Where you see something so beautiful, something so magnificent, that you get a sense of your own smallness. And when you do that, you just got a little window into the glory of God. 
into the one who is holy. Perhaps for you it's like um, some nature excursion. An African plane where you see a herd of wildebeest charging across. Maybe that makes something for you. I don't know. Perhaps it's a setting sun. You're walking along Perth, uh, Sunset Coast, and you, you look and you see the sky. Or maybe you go to Jinjin and you see the stars at night and you watch a shooting star. And you just get that sense. In fact, I just remembered when I was a lawyer, next door to me lived this um, guy from India, a really nice guy who was an atheist. And they had their first baby. And I, my wife and I were trying to be Christians, welcome him home when they came home. And he came up to me and you could tell he'd been crying. And he said to me, tell me about God. You just had a baby, man. It's just an evolutionary process. Get over it. <laughs> but you know what? Your first baby comes out. And you just go so small. You just realize, oh my gosh, there's something big. And that's what it is. The whole earth is full of his glory. You feel small. And you realize that there is a God who is holy. And it's just a window. It's like the book of Job, when Job's fighting and suffering and he's stressed and that. What does God do? He takes Job on the ultimate David Attenborough trip. And he shows him a whole lot of planet Earth videos in one go. And Job sees it all. And what does Job do? He falls down and he says, I am a dead dog. And Christians want to run up to him and just say, mate, you need self-esteem. You need help here. Not at all. He's actually telling the truth. He's seen what Isaiah's seen. When I was in Christchurch in New Zealand, you go to the Natural History Museum in New Zealand, and it's, there's this, this verse from the Bible, Job 26, emblazoned across the Natural History Museum. Now, the Natural History Museum is pretty spectacular if you've got eyes, if you're not there on a school project, if you're like just going there for fun. And you go inside and they've got little... Dazzling turquoise beetles with pins right through the middle. And they've got big woolly mammoths and they've got things that just go, no, oh, that's all. You know, if you have the eyes to see it, it's just magnificent. And you step outside and on the top is a verse from Job 26 and it says this, Behold, these are but the outskirts of his ways and how small a whisper do we hear of him. And that's what's written on the wall of the Natural History Museum. It's, I stopped, I remember, I was listening to you 2 uh, that song Yahweh, I distinctly remember. And I just had a meltdown and I'm about to enter and see just a hiding, a smidgen of his glory. And this is what Isaiah sees. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. So one of the angels, so big, when he shouts, the whole temple shakes and the house was filled with smoke. Isaiah sees the Lord, the Holy One, enthroned above earth. But what does this do for Isaiah? Look at verse 5. Secondly, Ah, there it is. Isaiah confesses his uncleanness. No such English word, but it's a cool one. Look at verse 5. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. Woe is me. In chapter 5, Isaiah is busy saying, Woe to you. 
Woe to you, woe to you, woe to you who drink too much. Woe to you with your four houses. Woe to you. He meets God. And what does he say? Woe is me. Well, I'm tired. I'm over criticizing everybody else. Woe is me. Our response when you're confronted with God's holiness is a complete breakdown. How do I know you've seen God? Easy. You think you rubbish. Quite simple. Our imperfection becomes overpowering in the light of His perfection. Anyone who's proud before a God like this has never met Him, never seen Him. Look at what Isaiah says, woe is me. See, the problem with people today is they haven't met the real God. They haven't met Isaiah's God. They think they've met God, but they still want to argue. Listen, God, just explain to me, why did you do that in my life? Uh, uh, God, excuse me, uh, why didn't you... You talk like that. Tells me you've never met Isaiah's God. When you meet Isaiah's God, all you will ever do is, woe is me. Listen, God, just explain to me why you gave me a gammy wife. Listen, God, just explain to me why you didn't... You talk like that. You've never met God. You definitely don't know Isaiah's God. Look what Isaiah says, woe is me, I am lost. And I want to say again that the ESV is weak at this point, because the word lost is just so weak. I mean, what's lost? The word in the Hebrew is intense. It's worse than lost. In the NIV it says, I'm ruined. It's not my, my life is ruined, my job's ruined, my kids, who cares? I mean, God, now I'm really ruined. <laughs> the King James Version says undone. And I, 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 I apologize for this this morning, but I, it shows you I wasn't sincere because I'm going to do it again. Here's what it really is in the English language. For me to make it clear to you, I'm stuffed. That's what it means. I'm stuffed. Woe is me, I'm stuffed. Why? What's wrong with you? Because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of the people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the real King, the true King, the Lord of hosts. It's the only, only legitimate response. You meet a God like this and that's what you're thinking. <gasps> oh boy, I'm starved. You never come to that place. You've never met the God of Isaiah. Sorry to say it. Let me try and explain this to you, folks. Everything is relative. Everything is relative. When you meet someone, you're better than them or worse than them. Are you strong? There's someone weaker and someone stronger. Are you good looking? There's someone uglier and someone better looking. Everything is relative. But when you stand in the presence of infinity, you fall infinitely short. Here's the thing. Isaiah says, woe is me because I'm a man of unclean lips. He doesn't say, woe is me because I'm a rapist. Woe is me because I'm a murderer. Woe is me because I'm a pedophile. No, I've just got unclean lips. 
Get over it, Isaiah. No, I'm stuffed. Because when you stand in the presence of infinite holiness, you are infinitely short. Anything that is not infinite falls infinitely short. There are no degrees before God. That's why it is ridiculous and blasphemous to call a human being His holiness. His holiness the Dalai Lama. What rubbish. Or His holiness the Pope. What rubbish. Before a God like this there can be no holiness. There's only people who are stuffed. So what hope is there? Well, thirdly, Isaiah is cleansed by God's gracious provision. Look at verse 6 and 7. Then, then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. He touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Folks, how awesome is this picture that we've been given here? Because the first thing you need to see is that it is entirely divine initiative. It is God who makes Isaiah clean. The dead king is unclean. Isaiah sees the true king. And then the true king comes and cleanses Isaiah. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. What you've got here is a picture of God's gracious, kind provision to deal with our sins. It's entirely from God. The seraphim flew from God to Isaiah, bringing a burning coal. It's so important that we get this. Isaiah doesn't waltz up to God. Oh, woe is me, woe is me. But never mind. Look what I've got for you, God. Wait, I brought it here. Yes, $20. Isaiah doesn't come and stand before God. Yes, I know I'm in trouble, but I'm going to make it up to you. I am going to live such a good life. You're going to sit on your throne blown away by my goodness. There's nothing Isaiah can do. I'm stuffed. And as he stands there waiting to be undone, God does something. And a seraphim flaps down to him, bringing a coal from the altar. Now what's the coal from the altar? Burning coal from the altar. It's a symbolic picture of the sacrificial system. The altar, of course, is the place where sin was atoned for. And a burning coal was when the Holocaust, the Holocaust means a, a burning sacrifice was made. And so what you've got here is a picture of substitutionary death. That's what's going on here. What we are being told here is that the only way God's hand, look, that is uplifted, is going to be put down is if it falls on somebody else, on a substitute. In the Old Testament, that was a lamb. But of course, by the time we come to the New Testament, well, you know what it is. What happened? Why is God not, his hand not outstretched anymore? Because it fell on his son. When Jesus Christ hung on the cross, 
the wrath of God was fully absorbed by Jesus in our place instead of us. And that's what Isaiah is seeing played out in front of him. The death of a substitute. Verse 7, he touched my mouth and he said, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. What's going on here? What's with the lipstick? With the, you know, with the, what's all this? Well, the reason it's on the lips, and there are a number of good reasons. First of all, Uzziah, the king, was a leper. And do you know what lepers had to do? They had to walk around like this, symbolically, with their hand on their lips. And the reason they put it on their lips is so that their gob doesn't fly out. Because they're lepers. And so they had to walk around like this shouting, unclean, unclean, unclean. That's what you did. You go to the Coles uh, in Kingsway and you're shopping and you're buying your stuff. You're going, unclean, unclean, unclean. So that no one comes near you. But here comes a coal and it touches his lips. It's a picture of unclean becoming clean. And it's not just that. The second reason is because your lips represent your heart. The Bible teaches that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When your child puts your mobile phone in the toilet, the next thing you say, the next 30 seconds will be what's really in your heart. But his lips are cleaned. It's a picture that his heart has been cleaned. Not only that, he will become a speaker for God. Verse 3, sorry, verse 9. And he said, go and say to this people, Isaiah's cleanliness must begin at the mouth so that he can speak true and clean words. But I've said the best for last. Actually, it wasn't me. This is the order the Holy Spirit has written it in. Look at these words. What would you like God to? God comes to your bedroom tonight, two o'clock in the morning. God wakes you up. Hey, wake up. What would you like God to say to you? You've won the lottery. Wouldn't that be nice? Oh, thank you, God. That's a lovely thing to have happened. I think the best thing a holy, angry God could ever, ever, ever say to you, the one word, the one sentence you want to hear from God when you die is this. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. There is nothing sweeter that God could say to me than those words. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. It's the best thing an angry God could ever, ever possibly say. Here's the answer to an angry God. He looks at me and he says, Dwayne, you're guilty. But your guilt is taken away. Dwayne, you've sinned. But your sin is atoned for. It's the best, happiest sentence. God says that to me, I'm cool. That's all I want him to ever say to me. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Because of the altar. Because of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Because of the wrath-carrying victim, Jesus, in our place. God can look at any Christian and say, your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Okay, Dwayne, where can I get me a piece of this coal? I'll show you. 
You just have to wait a little bit because I want to finish with one last thing. Then I'm going to show you where you can get a piece of this coal. Number four. Lastly, Isaiah is commissioned to preach judgment. Look at verse 8 to verse 13. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, that's my Saturday morning prayer, Oh God, what must I say? And he never tells me, so I just have to use the Bible. But for Isaiah, he had his whole sermon scripted out for him. And here's what God says. Here's your sermon for Sunday, Isaiah. Preach this. Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Who wants to preach that? Oh God, can't I preach something else? How can I take up a collection after a sermon like that? So no wonder in verse 11, Isaiah says, How long, O Lord? How long before I can get a different sermon? And God says, No, you keep preaching that. Until cities lie waste, without inhabitant, and houses without people, and the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst. Of the land. The bottom line is that God commissions Isaiah to go and preach judgment. And as he preaches, judgment falls. Because, people, that's what preaching does. That's what preaching does. Preaching is putting the judgment into heaven, sorry, the judgment in heaven, into effect on earth. If you're preaching the word of God, don't get me wrong, it's not the the mugsy standing up here talking for half an hour, that's, I'm talking about whoever teaches the word of God, so long as they're preaching God's word, judgment is being declared. Here's why. Look at verse 9 and 10. How does it work? Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Make them fall asleep. Why? What's going on? Ah, oh, you know what it is. It's an angry God. Here are all these innocent, lovely, neutral happy people, and along comes an angry God and he hardens their lovely, sweet, soft hearts. So unfair, isn't it? Folks, that's not what's going on here. Preaching the word of God exposes what's already in the heart. It has the effect of hardening hearts that are already hard. If you think God is boring, you will fall asleep during a sermon. Because you already thought he was boring. Preaching exposes what's already in the heart. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? You know, Pharaoh really wanted to serve God, but God just kept hardening his heart. It's so unfair. No. How did God harden Pharaoh's heart? By begging him ten times to change his mind. Ten times. Ten times the God of the universe got off his throne, came to Pharaoh and said, Please, will you let my people go? Ten times. That's how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. 
Because every time he got harder and harder. Every time you come to church and you hear the word of God and you don't change, you're getting harder. And next Sunday will be even harder for you. Because that's what the word of God does. It makes hard hearts harder. The joy is it makes soft hearts even softer. And there's always grace. Look at verse 13. And though a tenth remain in it, it'll be burned again. Ouch. Like a terebrinth or an oak whose stump remains when it's felled. Here's the grace. The holy seed is its stump. The picture here is of a burnt forest. Smoky, smoky. But there's a little green thing out of the stump. It's a promise of new growth. So what's Isaiah's experience? Isaiah sees the Holy Lord enthroned above the earth. Isaiah confesses his uncleanness. Isaiah's cleansed by God's gracious provision. Isaiah's commissioned to preach judgment. Now, isn't Isaiah lucky? Hmm? Wouldn't you like to have been Isaiah? Would you? Wouldn't you like to see this God be raptured by his amazing beauty and be cleansed by him? Well, you can. Come, I'll show you him. Come with me to John chapter 12. Come to John chapter 12. What I want to do, let me ask you a question. Who did Isaiah see? Who did Isaiah see? What's his name? Come with me to John chapter 12, from verse 36. We'll close with this. John 12, verse 36. Halfway through. When Jesus, is everyone there? John 12, 36. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. There's the hardening. Can you see the hardening? Though he did signs, they still did not believe in him, so he hid them himself from them. That's hardening. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Lord, who is left? Who in June Lupman Kingsley is going to believe us? Well, I don't know. God knows. Verse 39. Therefore they could not believe. For again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes. And harden their hearts, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Who's Isaiah talking about? Look at verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many of even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. What are we being told? Who did Isaiah see? Someone help me. Who did Isaiah see? He saw Jesus Christ seated 
on his throne. That's what John 12 tells us. That Isaiah had a vision of the risen, reigning Lord Jesus Christ. The astonishing thing is they didn't believe it. And why didn't they believe it? Look at verse 42. For fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it. So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. I am not going to lose my invitation to the party of the century because I'm a Christian. Verse 43. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I'm sorry. I cannot believe in Jesus because I care more about what my friends think than what God thinks. Sorry. That's just the way it is. I prefer the kudos, the friendship, the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. Sorry, that's just my choice. And so Jesus cries out, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Verse 45, and whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I've come into the world as a light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I've spoken will judge him. There's the hardening. The very words that I speak that are meant to save you will be the words that will judge you because you won't believe. So I think Isaiah chapter 6, this has a profound message for the North Coast Gospel Network, for Down to Earth Church. What, Down to Earth Church, what do we need if we are to be faithful to God. Let me give you four very fast things. Number one, we need a grand vision of God's holy wrath. We need to see what Isaiah saw. If the people of Jundalup, if they only knew how stuffed they are, Isaiah was keen to go and preach because he knew how much trouble people were in. And as we sit here, happy, is everyone comfortable? Do you all have enough to eat? Everyone okay? But if we sit here with a vision of the Holy God, we will realize that mommies, daddies, children, uncles, aunts are stuffed. They're in massive trouble. We might just get off our bottoms. Anyone says to me, Dwayne, it's not about the numbers. I I have a meltdown. Then I remember to be godly, and I think to myself, you obviously have never met Isaiah's God. It's always about the numbers. Always. It will always be about the numbers. Without our message, people are stopped. They're in big trouble. Secondly, we need a deep conviction of our own unworthiness. The reason we want to plant um, North Coast Church and Uni Church next year is not because 
we're proud. Hey guys, you know how bad all the other churches are? We better plant a good Bible teaching church, eh? Because they're all so bad. <laughs> no. We plant churches out of a sense of our unworthiness. Not out of pride. They all sin too much. So we better plant a real church. What a load of rubbish. We plant churches out of a sense, not of pride, but of our own unworthiness. Thirdly, we need a personal experience of grace. Friends, everything I've been saying tonight, how can you go and tell someone how sweet honey is if you've never tasted it? How can you go and tell people, come with me, I'll show you some kite surfing guys that I was with on Saturday afternoon. You tell them God is better than kite surfing. They'll laugh at you. But you won't be able to unless you believe it. Unless you really have experienced God's infinite, dazzling beauty, you've got nothing to say. You're just telling people what's right. You've got no chance. We need a deep experience of God's all-satisfying, consuming grace. And then lastly, we need a willingness to go at all costs. Isaiah went knowing that it wasn't going to work. And Isaiah ended up being put into a log and sawn in half. And he still went. No, no, he didn't go after that. My point is, is that we need a willingness to go at all costs. Isaiah was told, your ministry is going to produce no fruit, but go and preach anyway. We don't plant a church, uni church, because it's going to work. See, Matt, Brendan, Dwayne, we got together, we figured out the ultimate church growth strategy, and so we're going to implement it. We go whether it works or not. We have to go. And we won't get sawn in half. It'll probably cost us Effort, energy, and boy, is it going to cost you guys money. Whoa, we just worked out our budget for 2013. Boy, are you guys going to have to cough up. But that's what we do. That's what we need if we are to be effective witnesses. Gee, I've gone on for long. Such a great passage. Should I have one or two quick questions? Matt says yes. One or two quick questions. Oh, dudes. Yeah, that's, and by the way, I've just been told that I must not, right now, I must repeat the question because the folk online are saying we want to hear the question. And of course you do because it's from Dougal. Um, so Dougal's comment is, great message, thanks Dougal. Uh, we need to have a clear vision of God's holy wrath and it humbles us and it makes us. But what about the change that the cross brings? This idea of God's lifted up hand we all know has fallen on Jesus. Doesn't that, isn't that a game changer? How can we go and preach of a wrathful God in the light of Jesus on the cross? And the answer is, it's now even worse. Because the book of Hebrews says, if they perished under the Mosaic law, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? How will we escape if we treat as an unholy thing the death of Jesus on the cross? How will we escape if we trample his blood underfoot? It's actually worse. Now that Jesus has borne God's punishment, those who refuse that message are in far more trouble than Sodom and Gomorrah. Because that's what Jesus said. 
Jesus said, on that day, I tell you the truth, it will be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you who reject Jesus Christ. So it's worse. So good, good question. Guys, in the Mosaic era, you don't have to preach. It was bad, but shame, poor guys. Now that Jesus has come, it's worse. Another question, cat. It's interesting. So the question is, uh, and I knew cat would ask about the angels. So cat is, uh, Katniss is asking about the seraphim and the, the seraphim are designed to keep, well, their task is to keep unclean beings away from God. But how does that line up with a God who's inviting? How about a God who says, come to me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. How do we reconcile these ideas of a seraphim keeping unclean things out and a God who invites sinners to himself? And the answer, once again, and, right, and you started saying it, is the cross of Jesus Christ. Because isn't it interesting? Who came to Mary? Gabriel. It's the angels that start putting salvation into effect at the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's them who's looking down thinking, well, the book of 1 Peter tells us angels longed to look into these things. I reckon the seraphim got, oh, I'm making this up, tired of pushing people away. And so in 1 Peter chapter 1 we read that they longed to look into the salvation that God had promised. They couldn't wait for the day when they could give up their job and sinners could come. And that's the day of salvation. And you're 100% right. Now, that, isn't it interesting that after Christ died, there's a shining one in the tomb saying he's not here, he's risen. No longer pushing away. I'm here to tell you the good news. It's open. Yeah. Because of what Jesus did on the cross. 